So this kid, uh, 17 years old, you know, he's one of those people that you would say probably won the genetic lottery. He's a good-looking kid. You know, uh, he was uh, the youngest or one of the youngest in a pretty big family. There's lots of, uh, lots of siblings and young, young guy, but clearly from the beginning, he was dad's favorite. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life where you have siblings where you can just tell mom or dad likes him better. This kid was, uh, he was liked. He, his dad, dad loved him and, uh, you know, teacher's pet. He's a good-looking kid, 17-year-old. Everything's working for him. And, uh, and his brothers hated him, really could not stand him. I mean, almost immediately they realized this kid is dominating too much of dad's time. We, we are tired of him speaking even. The minute this kid would talk, his brothers would be, like, annoyed with him. And then he decided to tell them some of his dreams, which that worked out really well. This young kid kept having these dreams where uh, everything was bowing down to him. And so he thought it was a good idea around the dinner table to share those dreams with his brothers. That did not go well. Because he kept saying, you know, I had this dream where y'all are just uh, bowing down to me. And I'm like, you're kidding. And they kept have, this kept happening, so much so that the brothers were like, we got to get this kid out of the way. we got to deal with this kid somehow. Well, the brothers figure out some plan and uh, just so happened that they thought, well, we need to kill him. But the older brother thought, you know, that's a little bit dark. Let's not like kill him. That seems kind of, you know, the paperwork, horrible. You know, we don't want to deal with that sort of thing. The police get involved. So why don't we just like throw him into this pit? They throw him in this pit. And if that wasn't bad enough, then they decide, well, that's not good enough. Why don't we go ahead and like sell him. Now, you may have had a bad sibling experience when you were a kid, but that seems to be a little bit low. That seems to be a little bad if your brothers and sisters are willing to sell you to somebody else. And that's eventually what happened to this kid. But with all of that happening, even with being sold by his family into slavery, God does something amazing through the story of this punk 17-year-old kid that will affect millions of lives. Put a pause in that for a second. I'll come back to that story. We started a series last week called Ready or Not, and we've really been focusing really on one word, and that word is change. Change is inevitable. Change is one of those things that whether we like it or not, it's going to be in our way almost immediately. In fact, many of you are in a season of change right now. And last week we started this series, Ready or Not, and we looked at this, this idea of being teachable, that when we're going through a time of transition or change, being, uh, being teachable is huge because God wants to teach us something when we're going through something difficult. And, uh, and we were looking at one specific key idea, and it was this. If you wrote that down last week, it's great. If, by the way, if you missed last week, you can always catch up on our podcast but we looked at one main idea, which was this. You are never more teachable than when you're in the midst of a transition or a change. You're never more teachable than when you're in the midst of a transition or a change. And God wants to do some powerful things through us if we're willing to remain teachable. And we talked about this last week. Change is inevitable 
so remain teachable. That's what we talked about last week. I'm Pastor Ben, glad you were here. If this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. We have a gift for you back there. But uh, awesome that you're here today. If, you're, if this is your first visit with us, uh, honored, honored to worship the Lord with you. And, uh, and we're in week two now of Ready or Not. And now this, this idea of change, many of us are going through something that right now. Some of you, this is a new year. It's a new semester. Um, some of you have uh, new jobs, new careers. Maybe some of you are, are, are empty nesters for the first time. And that's pretty great. You know, you kick the kids out and they keep wanting to come back. But you've got to keep kicking them out. So you might be empty nesters. It could be that, you know, you've started, again, a new career, a new relationship. Uh, some of you are pursuing that maybe. You're in a season of change. And, and last week we talked about this idea that change, as scary as it might be, comes in two flavors. There's the changes that you chose, right, the things that you decided you're going to do, whether that be that new house, that new relationship, that new career, whatever that might be, the changes that you choose. But then there's the other flavor, which are the changes that you didn't choose, the changes that you didn't see coming. And both of those are a reality. And in fact, for me, the changes that I didn't see coming were the hardest. Maybe that is true for you too. The changes that I didn't plan, things that I didn't choose are often difficult. But change is a constant. No matter what season of life, we're going to be going through some kind of transition or change. And God can teach us huge things if we're willing when we're in the midst of a change or a transition. So last week we talked about this idea of being teachable. Remaining teachable when we're going through something that may even be difficult, being teachable. Asking God, hey, God, what are you teaching me through this? Today, we're going to look at a hidden, temp, uh, a hidden issue in transition or change. And it's, it's one of those hidden landmines that you don't see coming. We're going to look at temptation in the midst of change. Temptation when we're going through something difficult. That is a hidden landmine, a danger lurking when we're going through a season of change. And let's, we're going to talk about temptation. So let's pray and ask God to work in us. Let's, Father, we come before you. We ask for your presence here. We know you're here, Father. Uh, speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May, may, may none of us leave this room changed. Father, we, we want to be changed by your Holy Spirit. We want to be moved. So, Lord, uh, speak to our hearts. Help us to be open to what you have to say. And, uh, Lord, speak to us in this issue of, of change and even temptation through that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, uh, I grew up in the 80s. Anybody else represent 80s? It was, a, it was last, last century. We, my brothers and I, we had a lot of weekends where we spent with my dad. We were, my dad and uh, my mom split up. My dad decided that what he would do with us is uh, he would buy these all-terrain vehicles. And in the 80s, that meant three-wheelers. You ever seen one of these bad boys? So that's a 200X. That was my ride. I actually had a 200X, and uh, it was a three-wheeler. Now, my, my three-wheeler had paddle tires on the back, so I was super awesome. <clears throat> paddle tires, for you, you that maybe don't familiar with these, they were meant for sand. And uh, so my, my vehicle had sand. Now, that, that also meant that I wasn't supposed to, to ride my three-wheeler on gravel or asphalt, and I always obeyed that law always. That's a lie. I, I actually broke tires because I rode on places I wasn't. Only meant for sand. That's what you're supposed to do with paddle tires. Only meant for sand. I didn't follow that. 
But we'd ride these things, and I don't know if you've ever ridden a three-wheeler. But three-wheelers were a little dangerous in the sense that you had to, you had to lean. You know, you had to kind of lean into the turns and that sort of thing. You know, after these came the four-wheelers, and those were a little more stable. But these bad boys, I mean, you take them out, and you kind of had to anticipate the terrain a little bit. You know, if there was a little bit of a, of a hill, you kind of had to lean. And, uh, and many people wrecked on these things. In fact, I think toward the late 80s, they, they banned them. Honda quit making these things because people kept, like, dying on these things. But when you're 12, 13, 14, 15, you never believe that you're going to die. So you're just going to ride these things. And we rode these all over the place. We went to Sand Lake, which is not too far from here. And then we'd go down to Florence at North Bend with a lot of, uh, a lot of sand dunes. And we just had a blast. But um, they were dangerous. I will say that we fell several times. And I, my older brother, Eddie, he, uh, he had a, a, a knack for wrecking in the most epic sort of ways. He would, he would wreck and... And it was just so epic. I mean, he would not look. We would be going up these sand dunes, and he would just be full throttling it right up that. It's like he had no fear, and then he would wreck. And, uh, and there was one time it actually sent him to the hospital. So, so these were dangerous, dangerous things. Anybody ever ride a three-wheeler out there? Anybody? Okay. Oh, okay. All right. A few of us, yeah, we're, 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 we're dangerous out here. But the issue was balance. Now, in, in uh, Japanese martial arts, there's a term for this sort of idea, and it's, it's, it's the idea of being knocked off of balance. And uh, in, in uh, Japanese martial arts, the term is kazusi, and it's the art of putting your opponent off balance enough that you can win the, the match. So once you knock someone off balance, it's way easier then for you to win the match because in a state of off balance then you can push them out of the ring. I think of those big dudes that are like, uh, you know, the, the, the sumo wrestler type guys, and, you know, they're doing this sort of thing, and they've got a very interesting outfit on, and they're trying to push each other out of the ring by knocking each, each other off of balance. And that's actually the term kazusi. And uh, they're knocked off balance. And I think there's something there for us. When we're going through a transition or a change, we're knocked off balance a little bit. And when we're kind of off balance, that's when our enemy, Satan, likes to get to us. When we're off, see, when we're strong, Satan's like, I'm not going to really jump into that. But it's when we're knocked off balance a little bit, that's when temptation tends to hit us. That's when Satan's like, you know, they're a little off balance, I can get them right now. In 1 Peter Chapter 5, uh, Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and, uh, and he wrote some letters. We have uh, those preserved in the New Testament documents. And here's what Peter said in his first letter. He said this in, in, in chapter 5, verse 8. Be, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let's read that again. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Spiritually, you and I, in the midst of a change or a transition, we can be knocked off, off balance. And that's when Satan 
tends to go after us. That's when, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have been in that moment where you realize, I'm, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm, I'm feeling tired, I'm, I'm feeling isolated, I'm feeling off balance. And you know very well, that's when you tend to get attacked. Some of you are going, maybe going through that right now. Temptation is this hidden landmine that, can, that we can step on when we're in a season of change or transition. And that could be no matter how young or old you are, you can be going through a season of transition. And that's where Satan knows he can get us. So how do we keep balance in the midst of all that? How, how do we keep balance in the midst of change? Well, let's go back to that guy. 17-year-old kid, punk kid, liked to talk about how great he is. He was a pretty immature dude when we first meet him in Genesis 37. If you have a Bible or device, you can find Genesis 37. Now, the entire rest of the book of Genesis is really about him, about this kid who started off as a little punk, daddy's favorite, you know, teacher's pet, loved to talk about how great he was, and God does a big miracle through this guy's life. But in Genesis chapter 37 is when we get to meet him. Genesis 37, I'll just read a couple verses here. And then we'll talk a little bit about his story. Joseph, this is verse, uh, verse 2. Being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And, and Joseph brought a bad report to their father. Typical of Joseph. Likes to tell on his siblings. Have you ever had a sibling like that? The tattletale? That's fun. Now Israel... Loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Not even like bashful about that. He loved Joseph more. And because he was a son, because he was an older in age, and so this was maybe, you know, Israel's last shot at being a dad, I'm not sure, but, but loved this kid Joseph. And he made him a robe of many colors. And I don't know that the complete significance of this Maybe for, for many of us guys in the room, we're like, eh, I don't think the robe would really do it for me, you know? I don't, that doesn't seem exciting to me. A robe of many colors, okay. I can order one of those on Amazon. But, of course, that didn't exist then. So, so but, but it was significant. It's almost like a symbol, right? It's a symbol that Israel, you know, Joseph's dad, a.k.a. Jacob, loved Joseph and put something of significance on his back, kind of showing that Joseph was his favorite. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, that's a nice way to put it. But I'm guessing what this means is that they had lots of negative things to say about their brother. I'm certain that they were probably not good church words. So Genesis 37, we meet this kid, 17 years old. And if you know the story, it's a pretty interesting story. But what happens is his brothers do try to kill him. His older brother Reuben said, no, let's not do that. That seems kind of dark. Why don't we go ahead and, you know, again, do, deal with him a different way. It turns out they sell him. Again, you may have had a bad sibling experience, but I'm guessing you weren't sold. And that's just crazy to me. So they decide, 
this is a good idea. We're going to sell this kid. We're sick of him. And they, they, they got a hold of his robe, by the way. And they were going to fake his death, put some, like, animal blood on it and give it back to dad. And dad's, of course, you know, grieving, which, you know, of course he would. So the son, this Joseph kid, he gets sold. They go off to, to Egypt. And if you know the story, he becomes a house slave. And uh, this is Genesis 38. Becomes a house slave, he starts working for a guy named Potiphar, who must have been a man of prominence. And, uh, and, and basically, he does such a good job there. He's 17, 18 years old. Uh, he, he works hard, kind of moves through the ranks of the house slaves. And uh, Potiphar puts him in charge of pretty much the whole household. Now, that's a great thing, but it also puts this, you know, 18, 19-year-old pool boy on the radar for mama. So Potiphar's wife, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you were rich and you had prominence, that uh, this gal was a looker. I'm just guessing. You know, uh, sugar daddy, Potiphar, I'm sure there were some ladies calling. So she sees Joseph and she's like, hmm, sounds like a pool boy fun. And she pushes him. The scripture said, like, every day. She's going after him every day. And, if, again, if you know the story, if you don't, that's okay. What happens is she finally corners him one day, and, and he, like, no, I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to disobey God. I'm not going to disobey Potiphar. I'm not going to do that. He kind of gets out of there, but she grabs, grabs one of his cloaks and frames him for rape. And this is before DNA evidence and all that good stuff. So what do they do? Potiphar's mad, of course. Throws him in jail. Throws him in prison. Now Joseph's in prison. And here's what's so amazing about this very moment. He goes to prison. And one of the first things that Scripture says in Genesis 39.2, and hold on to this, the Lord was with him. Now just hold on a minute. Joseph so far is kind of a mixed bag, isn't he? You know, he goes from a punk kid, daddy's favorite, loves to talk about how great he is. He's matured a little bit by now. You know, he's had some hard knocks. But he's in prison. And the scripture has the audacity to tell us, what? The Lord was with him. You see, I don't know that we would have the same reaction. Because it would seem to me if I land up in prison, I'm not immediately thinking, the Lord is with me. That's not what I'm feeling. I'm feeling like, what, what would you say? How about the Lord isn't with me because I'm in prison. I didn't do anything wrong and I'm in prison. But the scripture says in Genesis 39.2, look it up. If you have your device or your Bible there, the Lord was with him. You know, the interesting thing about Joseph's story this doesn't just happen once where the scripture says the Lord is with him. It happens three times. And I've learned in my time with the Lord, I've still got lots of maturing to do. I recognize that. I've read the Bible a lot. But whenever the Bible repeats something, it's probably a good idea to pay attention. That's what I've learned in my small mind here. When the scriptures repeat something, that's important. The scriptures say three times in this narrative, that the Lord was with him. 
And it came at times when I would think most of us would say, you're not with me. I'm in prison. I'm suffering. I'm innocently accused. But the Lord was with him. I don't know if you're going through a tough season right now. But I'm guessing it's some kind of season of change, and maybe it's a good change, but still unsettling. It could be a bad change. Again, it could be a career change, a shift, a loss of a job, a loss of some hope in your life. What is your first reaction when you have some difficulty? I mean, what's your first reaction when things aren't quite going like you like? Do you immediately go to, the Lord is with me? Or maybe you're like me, and you're going to say, God, where are you? Have you ever had that moment in your life where you're like, I don't, I don't feel like you're answering my call right now, God. I feel like you've, you put me on do not disturb on your phone, God. I keep calling, but you're not picking up. Where are you at in a season of change? Do you immediately assume that God is with you or that maybe God has deserted you? Or worse, do you feel like God is mad at you? Where are you at on that spectrum? When things go difficult, when you're going through a season of change, do you immediately assume that God is with you or he's abandoned you? Hang on to that. Look, let's talk about Potiphar's wife again. I'm pretty sure she was a looker. I've already said that. <clears throat> but think about this. Think if you're Joseph, okay? Some of you are young in this room. And I realize that when you're in the young mode, chemicals are going crazy in your body. And you may not always think as logical as you'd hope in difficulty. Joseph is 17, 18 years old, 19 maybe. He's a teenage boy. You see where I'm going with this? This is a cute lady. You're a house slave. What do, what do people that are enslaved, what do they have to do when, when their masters tell them to do something? I have to obey, it's legal. Play this out. Potiphar's wife, hey, Joseph, when you're done cleaning the pool, you need to meet me in my bedchambers. Now, Joseph, he would have just been obeying the law. Is it possible to obey the law and still disobey God's law? Think about this for a second. She was a looker, and, and if he would have said yes, who would blame him? Right? Think about that. Who, who's going to blame him? Nobody's going to see number one, maybe. She's the boss, and he's a slave. So I'm just doing what, hey, I'm just, you know, I was told to do this, God, and I was just obeying the, the, the rules of the house. You see where I'm going with this? How many decisions have you wrestled with through this whole deal? What's legal, what's not legal, what, what people see and what they don't see? A, a wise man, way wiser than me, once said the true test of a man's integrity is what he does when he's sure nobody's watching. Who's watching? He's just obeying. You see how easy it would have been for him. And many of us, we might stand in judgment over that, but I don't know. Were we in those shoes? 
What would we have choose? What we have chosen? I don't. You don't have to answer out loud. I don't want to put you on the spot. But it was legal. You said yes. You see, this is the world we live in, folks. This is, this is not an Old Testament document that's just a dusty old thing sitting on some shelf. This is where we live. What is Joseph going to choose? He's in a horrible situation of change in his life. In fact, up to this point, life has not been good for him. Yet the scriptures say the Lord was with him. This gal was cute, and he could have just obeyed what she said. But you know what he told her? I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to disobey your hubby. But even more than that, I'm not going to do this thing because it's going to hurt God's heart. Let me read what he said here. I will not sin. This is Genesis 39.9. I will not sin. I won't sin against God and do this wicked thing. You see, sometimes we're in a, when we're in a situation of being tempted or we're in a bad spot, we start to make assumptions about whether God is with us or not. We're in a horrible position to make that, that call. We judge whether God's with us or not by our circumstances. That's really not the best test. Well, he doesn't seem to be with us, so he must not be with us. I'm in this horrible situation. I'm being tempted. He must not be with me. The scriptures say that the Lord was with Joseph in that room with that woman. He was there. And Joseph said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this thing. I'm not gonna, it would have been so easy for him. Would have been so easy for him, but he's not gonna do this thing. See, when we're struggling, when we're going through this difficult stuff, we start making assumptions about whether God is with us or not. When we're going through a trial, a struggle, a loss, when we're going through temptations, what do we want God to do? We want God to what? Bail us out. Hit the easy button. God, I'm in a difficult spot. I want to hit the easy button. I want out of it right away. When sometimes God says, I'm with you in this. I'm with you right now in this thing. Joseph, what a story. I've never had it that bad. If you know the story, he goes to prison because he's framed for rape. Then he's in prison for a couple of years. I mean, some of his golden years, not golden, maybe his, some of his best strength years, he's sitting in a prison cell. And he does, he, the Lord was with him. The scripture says the Lord was with him. He does well in prison, which is crazy even to say. He does well in prison. The prison, like, guard, you know, warden puts him in charge of everything. Then he does this miraculous thing for a couple of friends where he interprets their dreams, you know, God willing, he interprets their dreams, and uh, then they forget him. One guy's killed. The other guy gets back out of jail and forgets Joseph. And then God finally helps Joseph get out of prison. And he does well with the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh, who's the king of the world at the time, puts him in charge of pretty much everything. And uh, finally, Joseph gets to see that God was truly with him. But the thing is, God wasn't with him just when he's blessed. God was with him in prison, in the pit, when his brothers sold him off. God was with him. And, and as Joseph matured, and that's a beautiful thing. In fact, that's your homework. Pause. That's your homework. Read, read Genesis 37 through the end. Read the story of his life. 
I don't want to give the spoiler alert here, but he does re- reacquaint with his brothers. And that's a whole interesting deal. In fact, the way that Genesis ends, his brothers are worried after dad dies that when dad's dead, y'all are dead. They get worried that Joseph, as soon as daddy's gone, that he's going to wreak some vengeance on him for that. I'm not going to tell you how that ends. That's your homework. Read Genesis 37 through the end. It's just an amazing story. But what we've got to hear is the Lord was with him. There are times when we're going through difficulty, we think that God isn't with us because we're not immediately seeing all the fruit, but God is with us. He promises his presence. Listen to this. It's probably one of the most powerful truths of the Bible, that God is with us. He created us to be in relationship with him. He is with us. He will not ditch us when things get difficult. God is with us. One of the most powerful, powerful moments in the Bible is when we learn that. In Hebrews 13, it says this, God will never, 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 not ever, leave us. You think I'm being silly with that. This is a rare case in the New Testament where the writer of Hebrews uses a triple negative. It's literally like he's saying, God will never, ever, 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 no, not ever, ever, ever leave you. That's cool. I never noticed that before until I looked at that. It's a triple negative, very rare in the Greek language. But the writer of Hebrews says, this is God's plan for you, is to be in relationship with him. He's never going to ditch you. Matthew 1.23, when we meet Jesus and he comes on the scene, what is told about him? He's Emmanuel, which means God with us. If we needed any other reminders. God with us, Emmanuel. The last thing Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 28, he tells them, hey, go out into all the world, share this good news gospel, and I will not leave you ever. He says, I will be with you always till the end of the age. How could a teenager have said no to that kind of temptation? How could Joseph have said no to that? How? Maybe it's this. Maybe he realized that God was with him. And I, I realize, you know, when we're going through something difficult, it, it's hard to remember that. But what would make a teenager make such a powerful decision that would go counterculture to everything that his body is telling him? Maybe he truly believed that God was with him. Genesis 50. Okay, I'll do a little spoiler alert. This is the end of Genesis. His brothers and him, they're having a little after-funeral talk. And, uh, you know, his brothers are waiting for him to drop the shoe, right? Drop the, I'm going to kill you now. I, I was nice enough while daddy was alive. Now you're toast. That's what they're waiting for. But what does Joseph do? He tells him this. What you intended for evil... God intended for good. I know that's not always easy to, that's not the self-talk sometimes that, that we have when we're going through something rough. Whether it's a marriage going sideways, 
It's a career losing. Maybe you're worried about retirement. Maybe you're worried about your company. Maybe you're worried about what's going on with your kids. I know in those moments, it's not so easy to have that, have that kind of self-talk. You know, God is with me. Or that what, this seems evil, but God, is, he's got my back. It's hard to have that kind of self-talk. But scripture is very clear that God is with us. He's not blind. He's not far. He's in those struggles with us. God with us, Emmanuel. Romans 8, 28. We talked about this last week. Romans 8, 28. You've got to hold on to this. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We're called according to purpose. So I don't know what it is you're going through. But in all things, God is working for the good for those who love him. We're called according to his purpose. God is with you. God is with us. If you forget everything else I said, it's pretty easy to do. Remember this one thing, that believe that God is with you. Whatever that thing is, that transition that you're going through right now, believe that God is with you. How would we respond if we really believed in life that God was with us? Try these on for size. He was faithful to his wife all his life. After 40 years of marriage, she said, I'm done. And God was with them. Or this. He was careful to eat right and exercise. And his BMI was just right. But the cancer still got him. And the Lord was with him. She found out her husband was cheating. Had been for years. It is some pretty bad stuff. And the Lord was with her. They had been praying for a child for a long time. And they finally got pregnant. And that child died. And God was with them. This is where we live, folks. Right here. The job was over. The finances were drying up. Things were falling apart. But God was with them. This is how it plays out in the real world. This is where we live. Seasons of change can knock us off balance. They can knock us off balance. And when we're in those moments of change and transition, we're off balance. We're vulnerable to temptation and giving in to sin. And that would take us down roads we never want to go down anyway. When we're in those moments, we're going to grab onto something. And if you don't believe God is with you, you're not going to grab onto him. You're going to grab onto something that's going to take you down places you never intended to go. When we're in those vulnerable moments, we, you, me, need to believe that God is with us. Believe it. If you're not someone who's following Jesus, if you've never made that commitment, this is a good day to do that. You need to be in his family. You need to have him with you day in and day out through whatever struggle that is. If you've never made that decision, you can do that today. Scripture says it's very clear. You believe that he is who he says he is. You repent of your sin. You confess that he is Lord and Savior. You're baptized. You begin living a new life for him. You can do that this morning if you've never done that. We're going to move in now to a, a time where we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's ground zero for every Christ follower. We do it every weekend. If you're new to that, the band's going to come up and they're going to sing some songs. Uh, meditate, pray, think on these things. Maybe you, you need to start having some prayer right there where you're sitting. God, I'm in this transition. What are you trying to teach me? And, and God, I don't know that you're with me. Would you, would you remind me that you're with me today? 
pray, spend some time doing that. Come forward to take communion where you dip a little bread in the juice. It reminds us of what Jesus did. His body was broken. His blood was shed for us. There's a place to extend your worship by giving. Feel free to come forward. Respond to God this morning. And uh, let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We're so thankful that you're with us and you promised never to leave us. You even gave us a name for yourself to remind us, Emmanuel. Help us be confident in seasons of change and transition and that we would reach out to you when we're hurting and we're tempted, when we're knocked off balance, that we turn to you alone. Lord, I pray that over every person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.